morning. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I, I love to hear what God's doing, whether it's around the, around the world or just locally. I love talking to my friends at Cultivate um, and asking like, hey, what's going on at Cultivate? How are you guys doing? Uh, you know, or whether it's Ben Wetzel, some of you know him from Resonate and hear what God's doing on campus uh, with the college students or friends with their missionaries and, and stuff. And so um, I, I asked Sean if it would be okay if I asked a couple athletes to come, if you get ladies want to come up, um, to share with you like what's going on on campus. Uh, I've been working with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, this year, and many of you know that I've worked with college students for over 20 years, and because of the pandemic, coming into fall term, I was like, I really don't have a job. I don't know what I'm doing with my life, and then I got a screenshot about FCA starting up, called the area director, and then met with them the next day, and FCA startup. So I just wanted to, to just encourage you guys, like what God's doing on campus and amongst the younger generation and, you know, campus, you drive by it every Sunday as you come here. Uh, so I just asked them to share like what, uh, what prompted you, because Callie, you guys in Anna, you guys started FCA. What prompted you to start it? Call Pat Bailey. Um, yeah. What was going on? Yeah. I'm Callie and this is Anna. We're sisters. We play basketball at Western Oregon. Um, we started it. Honestly, there was just such a desire and need for something like I didn't know what it was I kind of just gone she's two years younger than me so my first two years I was kind of on my own here you know just not really following Christ as much and there was nothing like that I knew of I've never heard of FCA and then my brother was in high school and his group started FCA it's like that's really cool I didn't know if that was just like a high school thing or if that was college too so I don't know people just kind of had comments to me and I had made We'd have talks about, oh, it'd be really cool if something like that was here, like if we could have a little prayer group or something. Um, so there's definitely just a need and a want, and I always just thought that someone else would do it. <laughs> and then it ended up being, oh, Callie, you know, like, don't you know someone? And then I had Pat's number for a couple of weeks during the summer, and I finally just one day just sent him a text, and he called me about five minutes later, and I had no choice but to answer him. And then that's kind of how it started. And, you know, it's really, it's been a really cool year of just like growth and it's only going to get bigger from here, which is really cool. It just like feels like it's cool to start something and then just see, oh my gosh, it's going to grow so much yeah. more. Yeah. But yeah, it's been super impactful. And I'm just glad that I texted Pat <laughs> and it's just a God thing, you know, like it all works out. And the people that started it with me, like, it was just funny how one day we just had a conversation. I was like, oh, do you want to help me? And they mm -hmm. were so willing. So just funny how that works. But yeah, it's been such an amazing experience and it's only up from here. Yep. So I don't know what you do want me to add on to that. Hey, yeah, whatever you want. You could add on to it or just kind of share what, what FCA has meant to you. And yeah, FCA has been really important because I feel like, as Callie said, we've been lacking community and it's easy to follow the world instead of God in college. So I feel like that's super important to have a group of friends. Now, I would call them all my friends. And now I think the guys group is like doing Bible study on their own. The women's group has Bible study every Sunday. And it's just important to have community and a group that has the same values and goals as you. And yeah, growing in Christ with them. So yeah. Cool. Anything else you want to add? No, she, no, she you <laughs> Get me off the stage. Well, thank you guys. Yeah, you guys play basketball. I don't know if we mentioned that, basketball. But yeah, it was so cool to have Hannah on the soccer team and Mason on the football team. And, and um, 
Yeah, I remember telling, or I'll make a comment every once in a while these two, I'm like, look what you started. You know, because so many lives have been affected. I've been kind of making the rounds, getting to know some of the athletes and to hear where they were fall term, like uh, a couple girls on the, on the softball team, where they were, just no community, nothing. So they just gravitate towards the party scene, really. Um, or you're just going to be like sitting in your dorm by yourself. And so to have a group that, that uh, a sense of family that's being built, um, a support system has been been amazing. It's really kind of saved some of these people out of that, out of that lifestyle. So well done. So thank you guys so much. Um, yeah. And if you guys again could just be praying for the athletes and stuff. That's yeah, really encouraging. We've got a good core group of, I'd say around from like solid core group that kind of comes to everything about, you know, 15 to 20 of them, um, each week. And then my wife and I host a dinner every other Sunday and getting the word a little bit. We've got discipleship groups going on. So it's just, it's going really well from where we were fall term to, to now. So with that said, um, we are jumping into a two-week series entitled Five Signs You Have the Wrong View of Who God Is. But before that, we get into the five signs. I'm going to take a good portion of this morning to kind of set the tone um, of why this is important and I'm going to need you to put your thinking caps on. Okay, I know it's a Sunday, um, but you're going to have to think for the first, first part, okay, and, and follow along. So um, there's a famous statement by A.W. Tozer that's been kind of going around lately. Uh, it's kind of made a comeback within the five or, last five or seven years. I know Sean's mentioned it uh, within the last few months, I think. But Tozer made this statement, and he says this. He says, and I want you to think about this and see if you agree with this, okay? We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The first thing that comes to your mind is the most important thing about us. Is that, is that true? Does that resonate with you? So like even right now, Right now, when I ask that question or make that statement, what spontaneously pops into your mind? What image are you getting right now of who God is? And some of you might answer that one with one word and just think, you get a mental image, you get a word, and you might just think, oh, I feel like God's disappointed in me. When you picture him, he's kind of got a furrowed brow, maybe his arms are crossed, and he's just looking a little bit stern at you. For some of you, it might be a sense of shame. You feel shame. You can't make eye contact. Like, what's my mental image? I, I, you know, I can't even make eye contact with them. There's a sense of shame. Or some of you, it might be, man, I feel like God looks at me as a failure in this Christian walk. For some, it might be that you identify more as a sinner instead of a saint. That when God looks at you or you look at him, he just looks at you and says, sinner. Or he has that look on his face. And for some others, it might just be like, you really have no idea. You're like, I really have no idea. I'm new to this thing. I, I, I don't know really what God looks like, what, what he, who he is. And, and so if I could say it another way, who is God or what is God like? What is he like? What kind of God do you believe in in the scriptures? Or what kind of God don't you believe in? And then, this is really important, how might then those mental images and those questions, how might that shape you in various 
ways. And there are many factors that can play into these questions and these thoughts, but how you answer these questions can, especially for young people, can set the trajectory for your life. Let me give you some examples, okay? For example, growing up as a child or, or in, in church, if you grew up in the church, your church setting, what you listened to, what was taught, how right, wrong, or indifferent, man, that can set up a mental image in your mind of who God is that can affect you for a good portion, if not the rest of your life. Another example is like what kind of father figure? Because we talk about Father God, most of us when we're young, we picture our father, our earthly father. That's the example that we have. Um, and what kind of dad that you had, how he lived out his faith can affect you. Let me, so here's an example. The guy, Alex, okay, who was on the football team at Western uh, 15 years ago, right when I came here about. And he burst into the room one day, and, my fr- we did, and he's just kind of distraught. And uh, we end up, my friend and I, Zach, end up praying for him. And that day, he, he was, best way to describe it is he was like delivered from legalism. His dad was ex-military. His dad was a police officer. Wasn't trying to be a legalist, but if you grow up in that kind of home, it's a very by the book. And plus, he played you know, football. He was a quarterback. So just very regimented lifestyle. Well, that, that just transferred over to who he thought God was. So his mental image of God was a very strict walk the tightrope type of God. And then that day when we prayed for him, man, he was just bawling. And I think I've shared this story before, but I'm going to share it again. Every year, this is 15 years ago, every spring term, I get a text from Alex saying, hey, he'll text me and Zach, hey, today's the day I, was, I, I walked into grace. I want to thank you guys so much. Like he celebrates it like it's his birthday. Crazy. But that is the power of what our mental image of God can be like. That's how it can affect our life. But maybe you didn't grow up with the dad. I had a guy one time come up to me and say, you know, you talk about Father God and God being a father. I don't have a, I don't have a father. I didn't grow up with a father. So I have no concept for what that looks like. And I was like, whoa. So he's this guy who's like, I really don't. I, my mental image, I don't really have one. I have no concept for that. You know, and then you just add in like just the hard knocks of life that can shape you and, and shape your view of who God is. You know, a lot of us, all of us, will sociolo- or psychologists uh, have coined these two terms like uh, lowercase t trauma and capital T trauma. All of us at some level have experienced lowercase t trauma. Okay? But not everybody has experienced capital T trauma, which is like sexual abuse, divorce in the family, um, a death in the family, an unexpected death. And those things can really shape your view of who God is. Because if you experience some kind of capital T trauma, then your view of who God or your mental image of God is one that's maybe a far off, doesn't care, why did he allow this to happen? So there's so many factors that can play into your mental image of God. And even as an atheist, when I was an atheist, I had a mental image of God. If somebody pressed me and said, hey, I know you don't believe in God, but if you had to describe what he would look like or what he was like, I would have easily said, man, he's just angry at the world, I think, and pray just waiting to strike people down. That was my mental image of who God was. So to come to, so what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
or can be the most important thing about us. It's said that if the truth sets us free, then it's safe to say that a lie will hold us back. Okay, if the truth sets us free, then a lie will hold us back. And so we're either growing in freedom, okay, or we're becoming more and more disenfranchised and disillusioned by a lie. So it's very important that we understand who God is. It's vitally important that we understand who God is. And there's two reasons. This is where I need you to keep tracking. Two reasons why it's important. And then there's three belief systems that are winning. Okay? The two reasons why this is vitally important is one, for your own soul's sake. Everything I just said, those testimonies, you think about someone like Alex, if he would have just continued in his lifestyle of, hey, this is who God is, and really never kind of discovered or accepted the fact of who God is, he could live his life with just a dark cloud over his head for the rest of his life. Having a wrong view of who God is for his own soul's sake to live a life that's flourishing, how God designed us to flourish. Not, not to say that it's easy, but to flourish, then we need to have a right view of who God is. So for our own soul's sake. And the second reason is for the sake of the world. Like if we're walking with a cloud over our head, living under legalism, and we're trying to witness to somebody, they're going to see like, ah, man, you just don't see happy at all. You seem kind of doom and gloom and kind of always down and and there could just, you know, so for the sake of other people being a witness, we need to, man, understand who God is and have a right mental image of who he is from Scripture. So the three belief systems that are winning are this. And this one's been around for a long time. It's probably never going to go away at some level. Um, but moral Christianity is winning. The idea that, hey, just be a good person. God wants me to be a good person. And I live kind of more under that rule, even at a subconscious level, than I do uh, than through the, the, the law of grace, right? And so moral Christianity is winning. There's this... Um, study that was done about a decade ago by sociologists, and I know Sean's referenced this, Sean's quoted this, I'm going to quote again, but it's done about a decade ago, decade ago and it, they summarized it by these three words, that, that there's this new religion, which I think has been around for a long time, but it's kind of the first time they really did a study on it, but it's moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD, okay, um, and it's just moral Christianity, but this is what their, their summary was of that. And they said this, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, and listen to this one, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves. Boy, do we see that a lot within the younger generation. That's a lot of their belief system is he's there to make them feel better about themselves, more of a self-help God, and does not become too personally involved in the process. Okay, so moralistic, therapeutic deism, or just simply moral Christianity is winning. The second belief system that is winning is, is, is a combination of atheism and agnosticism. So according to American Survey Center in 2021, amongst millennials and Gen Z, atheism and agnosticism are on the rise. So agnosticism, um, just to, re to clarify, because I, I, even I forget what that means, this is a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God or of anything beyond material phenomenon. 
a person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. So this idea of just like, not really sure, kind of believe in God, kind of don't, but nothing's knowable beyond what I can touch and feel. But there has been an increase in spirituality within the last two years. Studies have shown that millennials and Gen Z, man, the, the, because of isolation and depression and uh, you know, coming out of COVID, all this stuff, there has been an uptick in spirituality, but not necessarily in Jesus. And so atheism and agnosticism are winning at that level. Impact 360 Institute, Institute says that only 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview. Only 4% of younger people. Okay? The third one is an increase in the Enlightenment belief system. Okay, this started in the 17th and 18th century where the Enlightenment or intellectual movement um, became central to the Western society. And these are ideas concerning God, reason, and nature. So central to this thought were the use of and celebration of reason, the power by which humans understand the universe and improve their own condition. Yeah, how's that working out? How's that working out? Improving their own condition. Every study says otherwise. The goals of rational humanity were considered to be knowledge, freedom, and happiness. Every statistic, especially amongst the younger people, speaks opposite of that. Absolutely opposite of that. All morality is, ba is, is a social construct, and at best, at best it just holds society together. That's what we're faced against. That's what people are buying into, especially young people. But here's the good news. So we doing okay, right? Everybody's encouraged now. You're going to email Sean and be like, don't ever let that guy speak again. Gosh. But here's, here's the turning point, right? Billy Graham. Can't go wrong with Billy Graham. Billy Graham said, when we come to the end of ourselves, when we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. I love that. When we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. And that's like been my prayer, especially working with college students and really kind of getting back into SCA because prior to that, like I wasn't doing anything. I remember I'd walk around the campus and just knowing like I'd pray, especially for the athletes. And I would just pray like, God, what do I do? What do I do? You know, because I'd hear the stories. I'd see people. Um, I'd read the articles. I'd see the posts. And just the, just the depression, the anxiety, the suicide rates, everything on the rise. But man, what, we see, what I'm seeing though is that these people, when I talk to the athletes, just over the course of this year, when I hear people's testimony, it's this. They're coming to the end of themselves. They start to experience the things of the world. They start to have dark thoughts. They come to the end of themselves. And because FCA is there, there's some kind of community for them. Boom. They say, hey, I, I want this. This enlightenment stuff is not working. But I'm finding something within Jesus. And the sad thing about the enlightenment movement, this is so sad, is that it's almost like this social experiment that, is, that we're watching fail before our eyes, and it's at the cost of our kids and the younger generation. It's super sad to watch. So let's begin a ground zero of who God is. Um, for a resource on this, there's a book called uh, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. 
Phenomenal book. He dives into these two verses really, really well. Two weeks. I don't have time to dive into anything but the two verses. So uh, I, w- I would highly recommend that book. Okay. God, um, so if you have a Bible or a phone, turn to Exodus 34, 6 through 7. 6 through 7, 30, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And this is God's self-disclosure of himself. Okay, it's the only place in all the Bible where God describes himself. Whoa. Okay, it's the only place in the Bible where God describes himself. And because of that, it is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. So when I read these verses and kind of heard about this, as I started reading through the Psalms and the prophets, I'm like, oh, this phrase is all over the place because it's the epicenter of a theology for God because it's the only place where God says, hey, this is who I am. And so to set the tone, Moses, if you remember, you know a little bit of the Old Testament, right? Moses goes up to the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, but because the nation of Israel, the group, the camp, is building a golden calf out of gold, uh, he comes down, breaks the stone tablets, reprimands the people, goes back up to the mountain to kind of finish his meeting with God, and that's where God speaks to him about who he is. And the interesting thing, that one thing that Moses prays in the previous chapter, he says, God, would you teach me your ways that I may know you? And in a sense, a chapter later, this is his response. Okay, verse six, the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, Yahweh, or what we translate the Lord, the Lord. And here it is, the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. That word, that Hebrew word, hased, man, books have been written about it. That, you know, scholars have such a hard time because we don't have an English translation. They, they, they can't figure out exactly what this means. It can mean loyal love, which is where our idea of like a covenantal love. So not just like, hey, I'm loyal to you, but making a covenant. Remember how God with the old, uh, in the Old Testament made a covenant with his people? He initiated that covenant, so this loyal covenantal love, steadfast love, faithful love, loving kindness. But most scholars would say it's somewhere in between unfailing and loyal love. That's probably the best description that they can give, okay? Verse 7, I lash, uh, lash, that's not it. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Now, the second part of that verse where it's like, I do not excuse excuse sins uh, of the parents upon the children, there almost sounds like this, uh, like, oh, because of your parents, you're screwed. It's not what he's saying. Again, Get the book. He does a really good job of explaining that. But listen. Now, listen to this. Rabbis break this verse down into, the Jewish rabbis break this down into 13 attributes of mercy. So let's just stop there for a moment. The 13 attributes of mercy. Now you take just that title, 13 attributes of mercy, and put that against your mental image of God. Does that align with the mental image of of God that you have? Do you picture, is that the first thing that came to your mind was, oh, when I picture God, I picture mercy. I picture compassion. 
And maybe, maybe if you do, hey, praise God, you're on the right track. That my, man, my experience, and even, even today at 49, being in the ministry 20 years, I still fall into some of the things that we're going to go over this week and next week. I have a, I, my, my, like, like Tozer said, man, I am sometimes bent towards my mental image of God and not necessarily who God just described himself as. Another way to say this is, listen, what John 3.16 is to the Western church, this Exodus scripture is to the Jewish people. So you could have an atheist, you could go up to an atheist and say, hey, what do you know about Christianity? They might say, I don't know anything, but I think John 3.16 is pretty important because every once in a while I see it on a poster or something at a football game or tattooed on somebody's arm, right? So you could go to some pagan person that knows of Israel, knows a little bit about Israel back in the day, and say, hey, what do you know about this whole nation over here? That person might say, I don't know anything, but I think this Exodus scripture is pretty important to them because they quote it a lot. Okay, that's the difference. And so, um, but the interesting thing is, is nothing's really said in the West about this verse or even this idea. And I think one of the main reasons, it's just a very different way that you and I think in the West. When I went through the school of ministry that our church had years ago, just a one-year program, you know, one of the classes we took was on the attributes of God. God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. God is, God is omniscient. God is omnibenevolent. Benevolent, excuse me. And the list goes on and on. And, and all that's true, but that's not how God just described himself. You see that? In our West, we have books written about the attributes of God. And again, those are true, but, if, but I think what God is doing is he's, he's sitting there going, yeah, but that's, that's not how I describe myself. You're teaching these attributes, which are true, but, but that's not actually who I am. That's not what I said about myself. It'd be similar that, you know, to my, my wife trying to describe to somebody who I am. Maybe I shouldn't use my wife as an example because she does know me. <laughs> but somebody trying to describe who I am, right? And me sitting there going, oh, that, that's partly true, but that's, that's really not who I am at the core of my being. Let me tell you who I really am, okay? So that's not how God describes him. Now, if he doesn't, when Moses asks him, hey, who are you? He doesn't say, well, I'm all-powerful, I'm all-knowing, I'm all-present. No, any list of 13 attributes, compassion, mercy, loving-kindness, long-suffering, forgiving sin, rebellion, iniquity. And what God does is he doesn't start out with a list. He just basically starts out with, hey, th this is who I am and what you and I would call character you and I would call character. So to kind of summarize that, okay, this mental image of who God is, we have, we put that up against the verse we just read, does that align, right? And for the sake of our souls, for the sake of the world, we need to get this right because these other belief systems are winning and we want to, hopefully, portray, right, the character of God and who he is. And we see this lived out in the life of Jesus. We don't see Jesus holding signs, condemning people for their behavior. We see the opposite. 
Woman at the well, what does he do? Shows compassion, loves on her. The adulterous woman in John chapter 8, opposite of how a lot of us would react. The woman who had the issue of the flow of blood, who touches the hem of a garment and healed, which she broke many laws just by doing that. How does Jesus respond? He responds in all those situations, really going back to this verse, these two verses. He responds with compassion, mercy, loving kindness, forgiving sins. So we need to get this right. So I'm going to get... That was all a prelude to get to the five. We're just going to make it through one, and then we'll go through the next four next week. Okay? So, number one, sign that you might have a wrong view of who God is. You're motivated by shame and guilt instead of love. You're motivated by shame and guilt instead of love. In 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. God is love. And everything I just described with kind of those representations of what Jesus did, those verses, God is love. Feelings of shame and condemnation or condemnation are often evidence that you believe God's opinion of you, listen, God's opinion of you is determined by how much you have or have not pursued him, how much you obeyed or obeyed him, or how many times you've gotten in the word. I mean, the number one thing I get, and I still do this, number one thing I get when I talk to you know, college students about, hey, how's your, how's your walk with the Lord going? It's always this, oh, every time. Oh, I could be doing more. We all could be doing more. I get that. How are you doing? You know, but the immediate reaction is this sense of, oh, shame. It feels shameful. Get it? They don't even look down, you know? So three little points here real quick. First, God never communicates using shame or condemnation. Those feelings are coming from somewhere else. And again, go back to the beginning with your, all the factors that could play into your view, view of who God is, okay? He never communicates that way. Second, listen, you get no say in how God feels about you. You get no say in how God feels about you. He's God. He makes the rules. You get no say. And his say, man, if you are in Christ, it is unconditional love. My dad growing up, you know when you're a kid, you're trying to make excuses, and you go, yeah, but. And he'd be like, nope, there's no buts. You'd interrupt me every time. Nope, can't say it. No buts in this family. And we have a tendency to be like, yeah, but you don't know my story, Scott. Yeah, but God. Yeah, but you don't have a right to say. He's the one who says that you're a child of God. You have no say. Third, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. Your devotional life, your devotional life is always meant to be a response to the revelation of his love. It's, why we take, it's one of the reasons we take communion every week. Just to be reminded of the unconditional love of God. Your devotional life is always meant to be a response to the revelation of his love. Not motivated out of fear of his anger or disappointment or guilt and shame. When I became a follower of Jesus, I got caught up in, in works. When I got saved, many of you know, again, this is radical conversion. And six months into my walk with Jesus, I used to just like 
you know, that guy that's just talking about Jesus to everybody, going back to family members, friends, and sharing Christ, and didn't know what was happening. I just knew I loved God and wanted to serve him. I got involved in a ministry um, that was very, it was good. Um, it was a college ministry, a national college ministry. It was good, but it was a lot of like, man, I got invited to be a part of this team and that team and this conference and stuff, and, and really kind of uh, pushed into leadership fairly quickly. And somewhere in there, because I didn't really have a biblical basis, my love for God quickly turned into working for God. And within six to nine months, I was like, I was in tears. I was a mess because I was empty. I was guilt-ridden. Felt like I wasn't a good Christian. I mean, the whole nine yards. And I, I became motivated by shame, which actually drove me further and further away from Christ. And so shame is never going to be a good motivator. So if you're ever motivated by that sense of shame or condemnation, man, that, that shows that you have a wrong view of who God is. And I came to this place where Jesus was a taskmaster. Jesus, uh, Jason, if you worship team wants to come back up here. You know, Jesus was a taskmaster during that season. And there's times where I still kind of fall into that that place of Jesus being, you know, I start to have this wrong view of who God is. And I have to come out of that. And one of the most important verses that was ever shared to me when I was in college was in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Those thoughts of shame and guilt, and I know there's a difference between conviction and condemnation, right? Conviction's good. We need conviction. We sin, we fall short. Ah, confess that. But condemnation... Man, taking those thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ. Shame should never be our motivator. And when I was under this sense of being, being God being a taskmaster to me, a man, an 18-year-old kid, um, preached on Sunday morning out of Revelation chapter 2, which became one of like my life verses, chapter 2. And uh, in that story, in that, that narrative, Jesus lists off, he comes to his church, and he says, hey, church of Ephesus, lists off, hey, you're doing this, this. He lists off like nine things that that church is doing really well. And you've been faithful. You've done X, Y, Z, well done. But nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. Oh, yeah, right in the heart. And this kid preached on that. And he talked about the shame that he was under, about how he used to do things because he loved doing them. And he's up there on stage and he's weak. Hey, we are so honored that you chose to spend an hour with us this Sunday morning. I hope this time together has been encouragement to you. I, I hope our time singing together and, and the teaching today. Back to my first love. I just want to encourage you this morning that maybe wherever you're at, mental image and all this stuff, man, go back to this verse. Go back to these verses. When you get home or just think on it today, Man, is this really who I believe God to be? This God of mercy, compassion, loving kindness, showing forgiveness to a thousand generations.